Do you ever hear of the Stations of the Cross? Do you know what the, the Stations of the Cross are? Uh, if you grew up Catholic, you, you might know what those are. As a little, a little boy attending Catholic school, that's my, I think my second grade picture there, St. Francis School. Can you find me in there? <clears throat> so I'm... Uh, Third row up from the bottom, right kind of over by me here. Second one in. That's me. That's me. Yeah. And, uh, and, in, uh, and, and the balls are, are on a trip this weekend, John and Karen Ball. Second one from the bottom, uh, or the bottom row, second one from the end, is, that's Karen Ball right there. And uh, so anyway, that's our little... Uh, second grade class at St. Francis. And once a week during Lent, we got out of school a little bit early. We would walk kitty corner across the block to St. Francis Church to relive the experience of the cross. I always wondered about the, the two men crucified next to Jesus. They, they were an interesting pair. They always caught my eye. They provoke one of the seven last words of Jesus, the seven words of love, as our series is called. Luke 23 is where I'll kind of refer back to numerous times during the service, but Luke 23, beginning in verse 39, it says, and one of the malefactors, one of the criminals, which were hanged, railed on him, speaking of Jesus, saying, If you be the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Dost thou not fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, the, the, the second of our seven words of love, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. The bogus trial is in the books. It's now about 9 a.m. in the morning and Jesus is making his way toward the place where his verdict would be carried out. He's led by soldiers, including one that holds a placard declaring the crime for which he is sentenced to death. Also in the custody of the soldiers are two notorious criminals, both with a death sentence looming over them. As the procession continues toward its fateful end, Jesus encounters a group of women whose Ministry, it is, to provide medicated wine, an intoxicant, to the victims of crucifixion. They're moved with compassion as they see Jesus. In verse 28 of Luke 23, Jesus turning to them says, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Jesus looks into the future and he laments the impending doom of the city that he loves 
so much. And in the, the forthcoming years, his words would be fulfilled. Trouble was coming. At the gate of the city, Jesus, wearied from the lacerations, the loss of blood, and the beating he endured, collapses beneath the weight of the cross. To expedite the execution process, the Roman soldiers enlist a man named Simon, Simon of Cyrene, to help carry the tool of execution. No Roman would stoop to touch the shameful tree that we know as the cross. Finally, they arrive at Golgotha, the place of execution. It's a, it's a hill known as Calvary, a place called the Skull. There, the three victims are nailed each to their cross and lifted high until the base of each cross drops into the hole dug for it with a sickening thud that tears at the wounds already inflicted. From the cross... Jesus would utter seven phrases, seven profound and impactful sayings that demonstrated his mission, his heart, and his obedience. Seven powerful words, seven words of love. Three victims, all stripped of their garments and exposed in public humiliation. Jesus is there. But he's not alone. All four gospel accounts record there were two thieves crucified with Jesus. Each account comes from a little different perspective, some just mentioning them in passing. Our passage today, Luke 23, verse 33, says, When they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand, the other on the left. Mark's account says, with him they crucify two thieves, the one on his right hand, the other on his left. Matthew 27 says, the thieves also which were crucified with him. John 19 verse 18, they crucified him and two other with him, on either side one, and Jesus in the midst. Two sinners, Think about this. Two sinners spend their last moments on earth next to Jesus. One on his left, the other on his right, and Jesus in the middle. And maybe, just maybe, it's a picture of all of us. We're all there in that dramatic scene. We are each one of those sinners. Jesus is within reach. The choice is distinct and clear. And it's there, right there, for each one of us. We're left to choose His way or our way. And each of the thieves made their choice that day. Both were steeped in sin. Both were as guilty as guilty can be. One hardened his heart in his own pride, the other humbled himself and looked to Jesus. He's known as the, the penitent or the repentant thief. What do we know about him? Well, here's five things we know about the repentant thief. Number one, we know he was a sinner. 
It's no mystery. It's no great revelation. He never lays claim to innocence. Speaking of his plight, he admitted, we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. Sin is the transgression of the law. He did that. We have a full confession. Guilty as charged. He fully acknowledges his sin. The first step in restoration is always taking responsibility for your actions. You can't fix what you don't own. For those who cannot acknowledge their responsibility, the problems never seem to go away. They find themselves going around the same mountain over and over again. Some deny guilt. The average person on the street makes every claim to being a good person. In fact, Proverbs 20, verse 6 says, Most men will proclaim everyone his own goodness. True enough. They deny guilt. Others minimize. <laughs> it wasn't, wasn't a big deal. Everybody does it. He regards his sin as less, at less than its true value or importance. No big deal. At least to him. Some deflect. I did it, but it was because of the way I was raised or the way I was treated or my shoes are too tight. They admit their guilt, but not their fault. Still others are good at the blame game. Adam blamed Eve, and Eve blamed the serpent, and God threw them all out of the garden. Husbands blame wives, and wives blame husbands, and Republicans blame Democrats, and Democrats blame Republicans, and the net result is nothing changes. Nothing changes in Congress, nothing changes in the home, and nothing changes in the heart. Not until we finally come to the conclusion, my sin is my responsibility. And you, you are guilty. Trust me, you are. Have you ever, have you ever told a lie? Me too. That means we're both 0 for 1 on the Ten Commandments. Have you ever stolen anything? 0 for 2. Have you used the Lord's name in vain? That's, that's blasphemy. Very serious in the eyes of God. Have you ever coveted? Have you always honored, honored your parents? Have you always kept the Sabbath holy? We're 0 for 6. Have you always put God first? Have you ever made for yourself a false God, either with your hands or in your mind? Now we're 0 for 8. Have you ever committed adultery? No. Well, the Bible says if you've ever lusted, you've committed adultery in your heart. If you've ever been angry without cause, then you've committed murder in your heart. You still think you're a good person? My hunch is you're just like me. 0 for 10 on the Ten Commandments. You're, you're a sinner. And you're without excuse. You can deny it, deflect it, minimize it, or try to blame someone else. But none of that changes the fact. 
You are a sinner. And so am I. Nothing can change until you acknowledge your sin. The penitent thief finally got it. After a lifetime of crime and behavior worthy of nothing but the death penalty, he finally acknowledged his sin. We are here, he said, because we deserve to be here. Have you come to that conclusion? The Bible makes it eminently clear that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What do we know about the repentant repentant thief? We know he was a sinner. Second, we know that he feared God. It says in Luke 23, it says one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on Jesus saying, hey, if you're the Christ, then save yourself and save us too. But the other answering rebuked him saying, don't you fear God? Don't you fear God? The penitent thief asked his partner in crime, don't you fear God? It's a great question. And this is where it all starts. The fear of the Lord has has an effect on us that allows us, helps to bring us into right relationship with Him. And make no mistake, you cannot get there without it. Fearing God has a profound effect on us. It's a recurring theme. The fear of the Lord throughout Scripture. Proverbs 10.27 says, the fear of the Lord, hear this now, it says the fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked shall be shortened. Proverbs 19.23, the fear of the Lord tends to life, and he that has it shall abide satisfied. He that has the fear of the Lord will abide satisfied. He shall not be visited with evil. Proverbs 22.4, by humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. Proverbs 28.14, how blessed is the man who fears always, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Psalm 33.18-19, behold the eye of the Lord is upon them that what? Them that fear him upon them that hope in His mercy to deliver their soul from death, to keep them alive in famine. Psalm 34, 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around who? Those who fear Him, and He delivers them. Psalm 85, 9, surely His salvation is near to who? To those who fear Him, that glory may dwell in their land. I think we need a little more of the fear of the Lord in the good old U.S., of a Psalm 145:19 He will fulfill the desire of who those who fear him he will also hear their cry and save them Psalm 147:11 The Lord takes pleasure in them that fear him in those that hope in his mercy Proverbs 15:16 Better is a little with fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it Luke 150 his mercy is on them that what them that 
fear him from generation to generation. Psalm 20, 25, 12. Who's the man that fears the Lord? God will instruct him in the way that he should choose. Psalm 103, 11. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward who? Toward them that fear him. Psalm 115, 11. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help. He is their shield. Proverbs 14, 26. In the fear of the Lord is strong confidence and his children shall have a place of refuge. Proverbs 14, 27. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to depart from the snares of death. Malachi 4, 2. But unto you that fear my name, the Son of Righteousness, shall arise with healing in His wings. Psalm 34, 9 says, Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints, for there is no want to them that fear Him. Listen, if you're going to know and if you're going to understand God, you will need to grasp the concept of the fear of the Lord. Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. In another proverb, it says that, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Without the fear of the Lord, you have none of that. True wisdom, true knowledge, true understanding is all rooted in the fear of the Lord. And that's why the world is so lost. They've lost the reverence of God. They live lives void, absent of the fear of the Lord. But the repentant thief believed in God. He understood who God was and that he was to be feared. The fear of the Lord is the beginning. And the fear and the penitent thief feared God. What do we know about the penitent thief? Number three, we know that he believed he would face judgment. Verse 41 of Luke 23. And we indeed justly, he said, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man, Jesus, has done nothing amiss. This expresses a belief in right and wrong and that there is one who will hold us accountable for the deeds done in the flesh. And so it is. He understood the rules. He understood the consequences. He made his choices. And now it was time to pay the piper. We all have an instinctual knowledge of God. Even, even children know that there's more than what we see. Ecclesiastes tells us that eternity is, is written in our hearts. We all know there's a right and a wrong. We know that there's a moral law. Therefore, we know there's a moral law giver who we will one day answer to if we violate said moral law. Romans 1.20 says, For the invisible things of God, the invisible things of God, the things we can't see, the invisible things of God, from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood 
by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. In other words, we know there's a God. Creation screams to us that there is a Creator. We look at a painting and we know there's a painter. We look at a building and we know there's a builder. And we look at creation and we know there's a Creator. Some choose to worship the Creator, while others choose to worship creation. The Green Movement. I'm all for stewardship of the planet. But the Green Movement is heading toward worshiping creation. They're idolaters. They serve the lusts of the flesh. Colossians says fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, which is evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sate the wrath of God comes on the children of disobedience. Hey, there's a price to pay. The Bible says the wrath of God is poured out upon the children of disobedience. As we live for ourselves, as we serve the flesh and the devil, we're storing up for ourselves wrath unto the day of judgment. The repentant thief knew that. We all know that. What else do we know about the repentant thief? Number four, he believed in life after death. Verse 42 of Luke 23, he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. When you come into your kingdom. Those are telling words. He believed in life after death. There they are. Dying on crosses. Adjacent to one another. By every outward appearance, life is coming to an end. And here the penitent thief makes a great faith statement. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. The thief was convinced that in the, in the coming moments, when his life left his body, when his soul departed, when he eventually gave up the ghost, there was something else. There was more to come as far as his existence goes. And he knew Jesus was the key to that future existence. And he said, remember me. Salvation, church, is not a destination. It's a doorway. Salvation is not an end. It's a glorious beginning. The repentant thief knew there was life after death. Though his earthly life was drawing to a close, another door was opening. This was not an end, it was a new beginning. He was about to pass from death to life. What else do we know about the, the repentant thief? Number five, he believed Jesus could save him. The repentant thief, think about this, the repentant thief had traveled a difficult road with Jesus during the last few hours. It was the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering. 
We don't know if he had heard of Jesus before all this. I think he had. I'm sure he had. The shadow that Jesus cast was large. He was impacting lives. He was making a difference. And, and, and word was, was spreading. After all, good news travels fast, even in the days before the book of Faces. At the very least, the penitent thief saw Jesus willingly offering his life for the sins of the world. He watched how he suffered. He watched how he looked upon those who were treating him with such cruelty. He listened to the words that came out of his mouth and out of his heart. And he knew, the repentant thief knew, Jesus was the answer. And in his desperation, after having tried to figure all of this out on his own for all of these years, he turns to Jesus. Remember me. And the response of Jesus is, is once again amazing. I, I hate to use words like amazing with Jesus because we use it so casually in other ways. But in the truest sense of the word amazing, the response of Jesus is amazing. Jesus could well have been concerned and consumed with his own stuff. After all, let's not forget, he's dying on a cross. He's, he's operating in his humanity. He's, he's suffering. He's, he's dying. On top of that, in the realm of the Spirit, the weight of the world has been placed upon him. He's, he's got a lot going. And this thief has nothing to offer Jesus. He hasn't served him. He hasn't loved him. He hasn't followed him. But Jesus meets him right where he is in the moment. Jesus is always willing to meet us right where we are in the moment. Whether it's you at work, whether it's you at school, Maybe it's you at home in the living room or maybe it's here kneeling at the altar in the sanctuary. Jesus is always willing to meet you right where you are in the moment. I believe Jesus more than spoke the words to the repentant thief. I don't know exactly how this is all laid out. I don't know exactly the positions of each cross, how far apart they were and all the rest, but I picture Jesus craning his neck around to look at the repentant thief. I imagine that Jesus caught his eye and looked deep into his soul and uttered one of the seven final words. Verily I say unto thee, today you will be with me in paradise. The lesson here is it's never too late. It's never too late for us. It's never too late for our strong-willed son, our rebellious daughter, our lost siblings, or our wayward friends. The story of the repentant thief reminds us God does not give up. And if God doesn't give up, neither should we. Three people crucified for sin that day. One is rebellious and self-righteous, one is repentant, and one is the Savior of the world.
What do we know about the penitent thief? Number one, he was a sinner. Number two, he feared God. Number three, he knew he would face judgment. Four, he believed in life after death. Five, he believed Jesus could save him. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Today, you will be with me in paradise. They're words of hope, and they are words of love. Would you bow your head with me this morning? I alluded somewhere back in the earlier parts of the sermon that this this image that we have of the crucifixion, the three crosses there, one repentant sinner, one rebellious sinner. And maybe it's maybe we're all in that picture, right? There's Jesus in the middle offering salvation. His blood draining from his body, a sacrifice for our sin. One step remains in the process, and that's for us to receive it. One looks at him with insolence. Hey, if you're who you say you are, then save yourself, save us too. And the other cringes. Don't you fear God? Don't you fear God? We're here because we deserve to be here. And so which one of those are we? In, in a sense, it's as simple as ABC, right? A is we acknowledge that we're a sinner. The Bible says in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that word glory, I think, is very significant because it speaks of the nature of God. Often when we think of, of God and our sin, we think, oh, God, is, he's, he's disappointed in my sin. He's disgusted by me because I'm a sinner. And he turns his back on me. But the, I don't believe that's the case. I believe it has much more to do with the glory of God, the nature of God. And, and his nature is incompatible with sin. So it's not a matter of him simply turning our back on us. It's that his nature is incompatible with sin. It's like, it's like putting a snowball in a wood stove. All of sin and come short of the glory of God. Acknowledge your sin. And then B is simple as ABC. Acknowledge your sin. B, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The penitent thief believed that Jesus was the answer. I believe in life after death, and I believe Jesus is the key to that. And see, confess your sin and commit your life to him. It speaks of repentance. It's not just a prayer you pray. It speaks of repentance. It, it speaks of a, of a turning turning from your own way to his way. And we don't know what 
life would have looked like for the thief on the cross if he hadn't died that day. But I know this. I know God doesn't make any mistakes. And I believe he looked deep into the soul of that penitent thief. And he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. It wasn't because the thief said some formula prayer. It's because his heart had changed. He had turned from his way to the way of the cross. And that's the choice that faces us today. Maybe you're here and you need to know Jesus. You've lived your own way. You've gone your own way. You've done it your own way. And now today you realize I need to do it his way. Lord, I I pray for that one today. Maybe there's more than one. Maybe there are many that are here today that see themselves in the scene. They fear you. They see coming judgment. They recognize that you're the key. And so we look to you. We acknowledge that we're sinners. Lord, we fall short. We've sinned. We went through the, the list of the Ten Commandments. And Lord, we're old for ten. We acknowledge that. We believe that you're the key to eternal life. And so we commit our, our life to you. The one who died in our place. The one who knew no sin and became sin for us. We received the work of the cross, your sacrifice for our sin. And now our penalty has been paid. And we purpose to live for you. Seven words of love. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Lord, thank you for the hope of salvation. We love you. In Jesus' name. Before I turn it over to these guys, I want to tell you about a little story that I I mentioned earlier, I think during the earlier part of the service. It was 1983 when I gave my life to Jesus. That was a great day for me. But this week, there's a a gal here at church and and she had uh, talked to me during one of our studies and she said, does anybody ever come to church and like read their Bible or spend some time at church, spend some time in prayer? I said, yeah, people do that all the time. Bruce comes and, and he reads his Bible here. We have college kids that come and do their studies. I wish more people came and did that. So during the week, I was sitting in my office and had somebody in there with me, but through the the window, I saw this gal come come in the entryway of church. I saw her go into the door. So when I got done in my office, I I came in the sanctuary, came right through that door. She was just getting up from the altar right here. And she looked at me. I kind of caught her off guard and tears were streaming down her face. She was a mess. And I said, is everything all right? She said, I just gave my life to Jesus. I just gave my life to Jesus. It happened way back in 1983. It happened this week. Which one are you? The repentant thief or the rebellious thief? The choice is yours. Let's stand and worship as we close this morning.